Okay, we have a wonderful speaker from London. His name is Alan Jay. He came to OA in January 2007. And Alan, uh, take it away. Thank you so much, Tina. Hi, everybody. My name is Alan. I am a recovered compulsive overeater, relapse survivor, and 100 pounder. And all of that in itself is just an absolute miracle. And it's impossible to put any of that into words. I'm just, just filled with awe that, that meetings like this exist because there are so long in my recovery that I was too scared to say that I'd relapsed. And being in the rooms, knowing there is finally a real solution, not just a, a white knuckle ride experience, but not being able to tell anyone, having to put on that, you know, lying to fellows in a way is a really dark and lonely place, darker than before I knew there was a solution. So just having this, and I love the fact that all these meetings have, have, have sprung into existence, but I'm definitely, definitely 100% a true compulsive eater. Just the insanity there in itself. So this has always been with me. I, I don't know what normal eating is. All of my memories from being a child, there's, there's food in there somewhere. Earliest thing I can remember is, is sneaking food, hiding food, stealing my sister's food. I was three when she was born. So this is always in me. And yeah, I don't know what normal is, but you know, I have, I was given the, the hand I was given and it is what it is. And I, and I can't change that. All I can change is, is what I do for today. So I was asked just to, if I wanted to share any photos, I don't have many photos. I hated my picture being taken for obvious reasons, but I do have a couple. So as, as uh, Tina mentioned, I did come in in 2007. I was, I'm so lucky I came in at age 19. I dread to think what another 10, 20, 30 years would have done to me because my body was screaming at me already that it couldn't cope, carried on. So there's not many pictures of me. My pages have moved. Hopefully that can be seen. I'm just this up, it's telling me my connection is unstable. Hopefully you can hear me. Yes. So the first picture is me at age 11. And there I'm already having to buy men's size clothes because nothing in the children's section would fit me. That just says it all. I think mouthful of food, handing something, desperately annoyed because I didn't want to be there, moaning, moaning, dragging everybody down, even though we were meant to be on holiday because I couldn't get what I wanted. I, I, don't, I think this is early 2000s. So I was probably about 12 or 13 maybe, but it just got worse around the same time possibly the same holiday i'm not sure but it just got worse from there and i think at this point i was having to buy 4xl clothes in a specialist menswear shop because at this point in the uk we didn't have clothes that ready available in that size and my poor single mum in the 90s with two kids had to spend an awful lot of money on my clothes and i did carry that shame for for, for a while and i think this was possibly around my biggest, just towards the end of secondary school. So I'm just going to stop there. So this has always been part of me. I said I don't know what what normal is, but today, you know, although I came, you know, came for the sanity, say for the, you know, the vanity and the sanity, you know, the, the thing I'm talking about. For me, I see now the weight loss is just a side fringe benefit of, of recovery. I came in wanting the weight loss, but the relief in my head between the ears is the most. Yeah. 
schedule to have property in Jamaica with only extra £150 for 70 kilos. Or if you're like me working old money in the UK, that's 11 stone. That's a whole person. That is a whole person. So no wonder my body was screaming at me. Quite literally. But even then I couldn't, I couldn't fully take the steps. There was still that part of me that said, it's not quite that bad yet. So going back slightly at the age of 16, the last picture I showed you at school, you know, I was a, I was a huge target literally for bullies. Being slightly camp, I was bullied. No matter what, I think most people are bullied at school, but I was, I was at like a double target, but I survived. You know, I survived that. But that was when my eating really took off. And I'll go into that shortly, but my body at that point, I was type 2 diabetic and there's heart problems running both sides of my family. So I kind of knew in the back of my head what was happening, but you know, that being unique, you know, it's not going to get me, it's going to be fine. But I'm glad that happened. That finally brought me around to realizing that actually I cannot carry on doing what I was doing. And my poor mum was just shocked. She had no idea the amount I was eating because when you go to secondary school, I had to walk across the other side of town. So it was probably a good, maybe three mile walk. And here in the UK, there's what we call corner shops like convenience stores every so often that there's absolutely loads of them. You can't drive down any street and you'd see one somewhere. So as a compulsive eater, this was great. You know, stop all of them on the way. Sometimes stealing the food, sometimes buying some just to, to clear my guilty conscience, but it just became constant. Now all of this, she had no idea. I wanted something different, but you know, as 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 it said in Bill's story, you know, or somewhere, fear sobered me for a bit, but it didn't last long. And for me, every time I try and go on a white knuckle ride on a diet following the pay and ways it starts that obsession as soon as i go down slightly on the scales my mind tells me oh it's okay i've, I've been good i can treat myself and i start again so for me the diet's just exacerbated the whole problem but you know fortunately i now realize that that isn't the problem the food and the weight is not the problem are we coming thinking it is It's just, it's funny how uh, the one day at a time thing I take too seriously sometimes and I forget what I'm going to do. I have to write things down. I have to do notes and have a diary. But there's, it's funny how the food memories from years ago, I, I can remember quite vividly. So I don't remember how old I was, but I th think I would have probably been around 10. I wanted the day off school. My name was a feeder. So I knew guaranteed if I wanted that out of school I had to pretend that I felt sick and I couldn't eat because it was unheard of for me not to eat obviously true compulsive eater I'm, I'm never not going to eat so I did and I managed to get the day off school so she walked my sister to school it's literally at the end of the road so I literally had five minutes and then the thought hit me oh my goodness I'm not going to be able to I'm, I'm literally going to have to see this through and not eat what am I going to do? So my frantic panic, what did I do? Quickly raid the kitchen. I don't know about here, but I don't know about other places, but here in the UK, we used to sell milk in, in kind of, we do it in pints. So a small little glass bottle. 
you could basically clearly see how much was taken because it was delivered fresh every day. And my nan just happened to see that that part of that was gone. So I had to had to lie. But that's just the, just the insanity. You know, the immediate panic. Oh, my goodness, I'm not going to take what am I going to do? So you have to eat. It, it's just physically impossible not to. I still remember that. I still remember that. Really weird. Absolutely no idea why. Remember these things. And I remember at secondary school. So the binges were pretty much constant at this point, as I said, eating on the way to school. My school bag was full of all, all the goodies, the cheapest stuff I could buy or had stolen on my way. And if there was a competition, you know, I could, who could devour it the quickest? I'd definitely be up there near the top, if not at the top of the list. That's one thing I was good at, polishing off a whole packet of whatever it was. Name your food. It was gone in seconds. It was gone in seconds. I remember at school, you know, purposely uh, helping the canteen staff to clean. Even though I'd had my packed lunch, I'd binged on the way to school. If I helped them clean, guess what the reward was? They couldn't pay us because that would be child labour. Even in the 90s, that wasn't allowed. So what do we get? All the leftovers. Loved it. Absolutely loved it. It was just all about the food. You know, I, you only realise through doing the steps how much of life it steals. But every single memory, even happy times. You know, uh, my, my, my dad remarried at their wedding, constantly obsessed about, you know, the food situation. Oh, my goodness, it's past time getting hungry and just just so not present. And that just permeates through all of my life. How, how much time I've wasted just obsessing, you know, either as it says in Bill's story, I don't remember when it ceased to be a luxury. It became a necessity. From my memory, all I can remember is it was a necessity. I had to always do it, always. There was no option not to, but it just got worse through the teens. And as I said, towards the end of school with, with the bullying as well, that would be. So in the morning, you know, that firm resolution, no, it has to be different today. It has to be different. I can't do this again. You know, feeling the pain from the day before, food hangover is a real thing. There I was, as soon as I was downstairs, at it again, again and again. You know, I used to have this really big bowl. And it would just be a case of, of never finishing all of the milk, but just keep constantly topping up. So I never realised how much I had, but that was a way of the self-denial, not being able to see it, just keep going and going and going. Beyond the point of being full, I always had to be completely full, otherwise I wasn't satisfied. And then on the way to school, probably eating from my bag or, or filling the bag with more stuff. Lunches, oh my goodness, the amount of times I've, I've quickly eaten things in the, in the toilets, which... I think I've heard many people say, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad that there's a few smiles. I'm not alone there, you know, eat, eating, in, eating in the toilets, then joining my friends, pretending this was my nice, healthy lunch, even though I'd just had probably four people's lunch in the toilet. And then probably going with them to the canteen openly and then and getting even more. And that was a thing back home, past the corner shops. And then eventually it become to be there was a takeaway shop horrible stuff to think of it now you don't even know what's in it but that used to be a thing the largest you could get and you could get change of, of five pounds back in those days I don't think you could anymore but uh yeah and then going home pretending I hadn't eaten since lunch and having a full dinner at home that's awful but having to feel constantly full I never knew what hunger was because I was just constantly completely stuffed and my body showed my goodness and the heat the seasons I hated this time of year because you had to come out of the winter clothes and into the summer clothes anyone who's been on the big side the heat is horrendous absolutely horrendous 
I don't need to go into gory details, but I'm sure you can imagine the pain that comes with it. Having to walk to school was horrible. And then trying to still wear layers because you think you're hiding all those roles. It doesn't. It just it just made it worse. But that that was my safety blanket. Layers were a safety blanket. I don't, and as the promises say, I don't regret any of that. That is my story. That was my childhood. I don't know any different. I love where it says, so that carried on through into work. You know, so the diabetes at the end of school and then having to go to college was even further walk. So great, that was a good way of exercise. And that did actually help lose weight. So trying to white knuckle this diet that this doctor and this dietitian were telling me to do for the diabetes. Things were going well. My HbA1c was 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 dropping. My blood sugars were no longer in the in the in the high 20s. They were down to kind of normal ranges. And, and she was pleased it was coming off. But guess what? It was quickly to come back on because it only kept me going for so long until it, I, I started cheating the system. I have walked five miles. I deserve to have this and then finding ways of of holding off as long as I could. And then it's like a pressure cooker. That's the whole part of the twofold of step one. You know, yes, I knew I couldn't manage the food, but I can't manage life without the food. So without the food, it's just a pressure cooker until eventually I have to give in because I cannot cope with life on life's terms. I have to find a release. And that was my brain's only way of doing so was shoveling down the food and shoveling down the feelings, good, bad or indifferent. They had to go down. So luckily it didn't come on that quick, but it, it did slowly come back up until the early, 2000, uh, early 2006. You know, everything was great. I was working again. I used to work with a preschool with young children. Many stories I could go on about stealing their food, et cetera, et cetera. Constant binging. I probably ate more than 16 children sometimes because I just keep picking at what was there because I'd always add on to the lunch numbers for the cook. So she'd cook extra. Well, we've got 25 today. We only had like 16. So who, who had the extras? me i loved it It was all free as well anything that was free or damaged or going to be thrown away give it to me it's going down because that didn't count in my head there was my food and then that was just separate that didn't count in calories you know there's absolutely no logic there but this is how the self-denial takes me i'm glad some people are laughing and smiling it's not just me that felt that yeah everything was great so i had a job things was going good you know boyfriend was showing me with with love and attention and stuff and he was a great binge partner and then it all fell apart but of course let's blame him it's all his fault it's all his fault within that six month period from that august to that january i realized how quick food wasn't enough i was beginning to dabble in other things so you know i openly identify as an addict you know food was the first of my primary but other things if i haven't got the food i'll try something else i was using alcohol in exactly the same way i was using food even stuff I didn't like because it was in the cupboard, you know, having to down it as quick as possible because I hated the taste of it, but I wanted the effect. That's just wrong. So I love where it says on page eight in Bill's story. I think this sums it up perfectly. No words can tell of the loneliness and despair I found in that bitter morass of self-pity. Quicksand stretched around me in all directions. I had met my match. I had been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. Now I love this quicksand analogy because the more I struggled, the deeper I sank on my own. I absolutely love that. 15 minutes. Already. Fantastic. Thank you. So I struggled in the rooms. And I think there's different re reasons why I relapsed. 
in the early days it was it was one physical meeting I could get to that was about half an hour away from here there was only about eight to ten people most of them women there was a great OA guy uh, a double winner and he said you know like welcome like you'll never eat the same again and it's true because I finally knew there was an answer you know coming into those those rooms week after week my deepest darkest secret you know the shame I'd carried for so long we all have the same there is no secret because walking into that rooms we all have exactly the same thing and that's what I love there was hope there but I couldn't quite let go of some of that that stuff and as it says the result was nil until we let go absolutely I struggled with God I believe what society told me that I wasn't welcomed and I was going to hell because I couldn't be who I was. That took a lot of unlearning to do. That took a long time. And I think I probably tried that RA waltz, that one, two, three, like trying, but not being able to do it for probably 18 months to two years before I finally sat in a car with somebody on the way to, to the UK National Assembly, which from here was about a three hour drive. And we just got talking about the higher power journey, finding what works. And just something changed. She recommended a book, which I, I can't share here. Unfortunately, it wasn't the big book because I didn't like the big book back then. It was just too honest. But she recommended something else and I read it and it just changed just, just slightly. Just open that door just a bit. Okay, maybe it can be something different. It doesn't have to be what I thought it was. And that opened the door to beginning to change. And then I think I've got stuck over the years at various different step points. You know, the step four. How, what step are you on? I'm step four. How long? About six months. I'm just dragging out the pain. I'm just dragging out the pain and I don't allow my sponsees to do that. We'll speak next week, if not before. Don't drag it out. It doesn't have to be big, long and complicated. So simple. It's just such a simple step, but just seems so scary. And the step five, you know, my first sponsor was, was an older lady. She's probably in her 60s, late 50s, early 60s at the time. So I would have been kind of 21 oh my goodness, she's going to kick me out. If I tell her all these things, she's never going to talk to me again. There's only eight people in the meeting, all this crazy stuff. And what I love about being a sponsor now is that I say this before people share their step five, I can assure you there is nothing you're going to say that's going to shock me that I haven't thought, said or done myself. The only thing I haven't experienced yet is murder. But again, I'm not judging. That's the only thing I haven't experienced. So yeah, we're, we're really not that different. We think we're unique, but we're really not that different, you know, and it's a privilege to hear step fives now. She didn't kick me out. She still speaks to me. It's all fine. And the step nine, you know, the men's, well, they were still more at fault, you know, and I, and I, I like now there's my sponsor told me that the now, later, maybe never. And there were some amends that I probably could have done better early on. I did the best I could at the time. Now, you know, I realise that the apology, the initial approach is just the beginning. It's, it's the daily stuff, making sure I'm in contact with my higher power, that I'm always putting other people first. And there's some that I've only just been able to make now. Only just been able to make now. You know, alcoholism runs in my family. My granddad, my dad's side died because of this. I can see the pain that has carried on down the generations. And there's a lot of there's a lot of hurt on that side of the family, and it took me a long time to be willing to speak to to my nan, and that 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 resentment took a while to go. So as it says in step eight, you know, and became willing to make amends. Some were easier to see than others, but 
it happened. I think most of my relapses over the years were because I got to this point or at any point I thought, that's it, I've cracked it. Guess what happens next? A relapse. As soon as the ego comes back and thinks it knows better, I am going to fall. Because as they say, you can only coast downhill. You can't coast uphill. I will always slip back. And my most recent relapse was just that. It was probably early 2019 when we were still at physical meetings. My home meeting finally closed. That small, church, damp church basement, it just folded for various reasons. I blamed them. I held on to resentment. As we learned from Fred's story, I felt irritated. Guess what happened? He relapsed. Guess what happened? I also relapsed. But I stayed in that for a year before I found another sponsor. But as that meeting closed, I thought, it's fine. I've got 12 years of recovery behind me. It's fine. I know what I'm doing. I know the book. I didn't really. I knew the steps. I knew how it worked. I'll be fine. Food is always the last. Food is always the last thing. My thinking within days had already started that whole whirlpool. Within a week, I was beginning to justify picking up a little bit extra. Oh, but it's been stressful. Oh, but she did this. He did that. Oh, but I deserve it. And before I know it, within a couple of weeks, I was inhaling whole packets of things again, just like I did before I came in. So the 12 years gone in a matter of weeks. That's the thing. This is cunning, baffling and powerful so much. But I, I used to never tell people about relapse. But now it is part of my story. And I'm more than open about it to anyone as of today, I'm 18 months recovered. I finally found a big book sponsor of all those years of putting it off because it was just too hard and just too scary. I love this book. I absolutely love this book. It has changed something. I thought recovery was good, but this has taken it just far above and beyond. And what I realise is that step 10, 11 and 12 are not optional. They're the ones that, well, I'm a bit too busy. I haven't got time for that. Step 10s are an absolute miracle. I don't have to hold people hostage. I don't have to carry that round. I can do it there and then in the spot, send it to my sponsor and it's gone. I don't have to live with one foot in yesterday and one foot in tomorrow. I can just focus on today. And as I said, the weight loss is great. Shopping in normal clothes, is, in normal shops is great. But the sanity and the freedom I have in my head to, oh my goodness, there's life in between meals. It's not just all about the food. I can forget. Oh my goodness, is that the time I've missed lunch? Oh, well, what a shame. Sometimes that happens. That isn't normal for me. That is not normal. I don't have to do those things. There's things in the house that used to trigger me. I can see them. It doesn't bother me because I've replaced that result I get from the food with this higher power that I really didn't want. I didn't want it. And it's weird how it took me to some places that I never imagined. If someone had said you'd be doing this today, you wouldn't be eating this, you'd be weighing, measuring this, you'd be doing this, you'd be going to this place with these people on a certain day of the week. I would have told them to, to go and stuff it somewhere but that happened as long as I stay open I really love that someone led me to the set aside prayer I'd never heard that and that is just that is that is it in a nutshell I need to remain open all the time as soon as I think especially anything spiritual I've put it in a box and I've said this is it more me I'm amazed that I've managed to speak this kind of coherently hopefully I've made sense I was not a natural speaker my first meeting somebody asked me can you can you read the preamble? I was terrified. There was like eight people and I was like shaking to speak in front of over 100 people. is just an absolute gift just to offer hope that I never thought this would work for me. I thought I was fundamentally different, that the promises wouldn't come true. But for me, you know, the most important thing is that I have that connection with my higher power, because the more I lean on, on God, of my understanding, the less focused I am on the food. 
So that's what I put first. I have that, for me, that's flexible. I don't do it one set way. I like to remain open and flexible. Sometimes my prayers, there's no words. Sometimes I write them out. Sometimes I can just be outside potting up plants like I was this morning. Anything that gets me closer to my higher power is an absolute miracle. So I never thought this worked for me. If you're a relapser too, this can definitely work. As it always does. And for me, the, the promises are the barometer of recovery. For me, abstinence, the food plan is, is great, is part of it. But abstinence for me has a spiritual component. Because I need that. That's the whole point of these steps. Step 12, having had a spiritual awakening, is asking me a question. Have I had it? Absolutely. I've had a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery. I don't have to think about these things. This, this way of life has just become kind of almost natural now. And I can't imagine ever not being in it. And yes, the last two years have been hard, but things like this meeting, I'm so grateful for. The fact that I can hop into a meeting or call into a meeting at any time, the podcasts that are out there, the people I've outreached with from across the world is just has opened up my small kind of world of recovery that was very, very small to this just unfathomable just gift network of recovery and for that i'm i'm so blessed i can live free and recovered today so 25 read minutes book. read this book it's all in there thank you kevin and it can happen for you too so i don't know how to finish but other than just thank you for listening and let me be of service i've i've shared my number in my name i'm more than happy to to take outreach it's an absolute pleasure i never say no to service even if it's scary like this seemed terrifying, but I've loved it. Sponsorship used to be scary, but I absolutely love it. To read the big book through somebody's eyes is an absolute miracle. And it reminds me of where I come from and where I don't want to go back to. So it's not about the results. You know, today I'm recovered. Whether they get it, I'd love for them to get it. But as long as I stay recovered, that, that's, that's all I can do. I'm no longer the director. I'm just happy to be one of the players. I shall leave it there. Thank you.